Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Stop Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Carroll. In this episode, we're talking about the market surprising rebound over the past few weeks, companies that have benefited from the COVID-19 pandemic, and the things we look for when we're picking a stock for the My Wall Street shortlist. Okay, guys, so I want to start off this week's podcast by talking about probably the biggest news of the past two weeks, which is Tiger King on Netflix. Uh, Rory, have you watched it yet? Yeah, I did. And you know what? Like, it's seven hours of my life I'm never getting back. Really? Um, I just like I. It's actually not that interesting. Like, it's a bunch of people who are clearly crazy. Just like <laughs> tigers, they not actually nothing actually happens during the seven hours that you watch it. To be honest, uh, I, just, I, I would say an awful lot happens in the seven hours. Well, like what? Like what is the big? reveal at the end like you know i really the only reason i actually watched it was i was worried i was going to miss out on the meme culture emmett have you watched tiger king no it was pitched me the other night and i had a look at the you know the shadow that the trailer that that netflix presented I was like nah i can't invest seven hours <laughs> despite being locked at home and having nothing to do i chose nothing over tiger kings or oh, what's it called tiger kings is it Tiger King, yeah, singular. There is, there is a scene at the very end in the last episode where this guy's like driving a convertible souped up sports car thing with like flames on the side of it and there happens to be like a skeleton sitting in the passenger seat. You you don't even think twice about it because it's it's the the show has led you to this point where nothing is too crazy. So you're like, <laughs> of course, of course he's got a skeleton sitting in this passenger seat. Why wouldn't he? <laughs> I think it. Uh, I think it's the perfect, um, the perfect show for kind of what's going around on around the world at the moment. It kind of sums up twenty twenty already. Um, so let's move on to more relevant things then. So um, this week, what felt like the longest march in history finally ended, and with it went the worst quarter for the stock market since nineteen eighty seven. So over the last three months, the Dow Jones lost a total of twenty three percent. Uh, thanks to growing fears about the COVID-19 pandemic, while well, S&P 500 lost about 20% and the Nasdaq lost just over 15%. Since our last podcast, however, the Dow Jones has actually risen more than 12%, while well, S&P and the Nasdaq are both up about 7%. So this kind of strangely means that the Dow Jones is actually back in bull market territory, which means that the drop, the pretty severe drop we experienced across February and March might now go down as the shortest bear market we've ever experienced. Um, Um, and I'm going to come to you first. Investors all often talk about like finding the bottom and investing. Then, um, have we just experienced the bottom of of this volatility? If things are going back up now, well, it's the old crystal ball thing. I have one, but it's just not magic. And I wish I knew because I found last week to be a very distressing week to watch the market because there was no rhyme or reason to the movements. You know, a giant, giant uh, supernormal stimulus package was announced and rightfully the market responded in the way that 
I'm sure the designers of the two plus trillion dollar package wanted. But um, I found it very uncomfortable viewing because, you know, we humankind doesn't really know the very long term story for coronavirus. So um, have we did we see a bottom? Have we experienced the bottom? You know, it's really anyone's guess. But my guess is, no, we haven't because um, more news. So the story, the news of stimulus packages is more or less out there. But the full story of coronavirus has not fully unfurled just yet. And if you sit and watch Bloomberg television um, or CNBC or any of the business channels for a while, you know, you'll get any, every shade of opinion under the sun. But there are quite some compelling uh, pieces out there to say that the worst is yet to come. Now, I don't want to be, you know, all doomsday about it. So I don't believe we've seen the bottom. I'm kind of in watch mode at the moment. I'd rather miss the bottom and be certain that things are on their way up again than yeah. to call a false bottom and and see that the recent surge was in fact just a response to a data point which is like for example the stimulus or uh, the the jobless data or the unemployment data so um i'm 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 of the mind that we will see the market fall more but i reserve the right to be wrong Okay, Rory, what do you think? Is is this a what they call a dead cat bounce? Um, I don't know, and I don't really care. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> like, like, it doesn't matter if this is the bottom, really. I mean, this is all unfurled over the last what three weeks. I mean, like in February we were at an all time high. Now mm. we're seeing, you know, like every single day now is either up five percent or down five percent. That, that's super normal. That's not how markets usually behave. And we're going to see at some point things start to level out where we get a couple of days where, you know, the market's up 0.5% or down 0.5%. That's when yeah. we know we can start relaxing because that's when people have fully digested the alarmism and, and the worst and best case scenarios and gone back to, do you know what? Most of the time, companies are going to grow their profits about 10% a year. Okay. And therefore, every seven or eight years, they're going to double. They're going to double in size. That's just how the markets work. Um, this is a temporary shock to the system. We don't know what the, how long it's going to last or what the long-term impact's going to be. I suspect, and I wrote a piece yesterday about there's going to be a couple of companies that will not be around this time next year. But okay. maybe they shouldn't be around. You know, like there's, there's an awful lot of things that just are there because they've always been there. Yeah. And yeah. Every now and again, a forest fire might need to clear out yeah. some of the deadwood. Entirely. Okay. And the dot com bubble was the most perfect example of that in my life, where it was just a giant spring clean. It was yeah. the a survival of the fittest. And those that emerged in the year 2002, shall we say, um, were fit for the game. They were ready for the next chapter. And um, I completely agree with what you said, Rory. Like, occasionally, a forest fire is required. The okay. thing, I mean, the pessimists will, or like the most pessimistic viewpoint is that there's actually a systematic failure here that we didn't see, you know, that QE or low interest rates were causing this massive bubble in terms of uh, in stock price equity. And they could be right about that. That's absolutely like a, a, a genuine concern. But the, I mean, markets are by their nature always pushing the limits. That's what yeah. they do. You know, if, if you're not going far enough you're not really in a free market economy that's we're always testing the next point of breakage 
but we recover. We figure it out and we go, we start going again. That's, okay. that's the way things go. So, so to go down to maybe a more granular level then, so one of the biggest in, industries that's been impacted by this pandemic has been the dining sector, obviously enough, because many cafes and restaurants have been forced to close down. However, an offshoot of this has actually become beneficiary, which is the food delivery sector. So the likes of Uber Eats and DoorDash and, and those companies. Um, Rory, we've spoken before, you know, in, in, in simpler times, perhaps, about how these companies, you know, they were loss-making ventures and it was very hard for any of them to carve out a lead in, in this industry. But could now, you know, when people can't go to, to restaurants, could this be, you know, food delivery's big moment? Under normal circumstances, food delivery is a terrible business to be in. Like, it's just yeah. awful. Like, at some point in the last 10 years, we were all sold this lie that it was economically viable for us all to have a personal driver um, and that we could literally have whatever we want delivered directly to our door for, no, for the cost of a cup of coffee. That yeah. actually doesn't work. Like... I mean, it works in the sense of like if you're the receiver of it, you're benefiting greatly. But if you're an Uber driver or an Uber Eats driver or a, a Grubhub driver, you are literally living on the edge of poverty and certain shareholders are making a lot of money off your misery. Like that doesn't, yeah. that, that will never survive over the long term. The fact that it's now we are in a global pandemic where people can't leave their homes has actually made food delivery a very viable business. So, I mean, would I invest in it? No, because it's not going to last. This will not yeah. maintain. Yeah. Um, but look, they bought themselves a bit of time to try and figure it out, I suppose. You know, the, things will change after this. We won't go back to the exact same way we were. Yeah. But are we all going to be staying at home when a vaccine's created and we're not worrying about COVID-19 anymore? Probably not. I think, uh, no. It's, I mean, and look, it's... it's Restaurants hate it. They don't make nearly as much money off as they do from serving in-house or even by just having like a pick-it-your-own pick-up delivery system. Yeah. And so, and it, it overruns their kitchens. And, you know, what's, uh, Travis Kalanick is sorting out this kind of uh, cloud kitchen business where you have dedicated kitchens that only do food delivery. That's, that's way more viable than your local restaurant serving people at home rather than sending out food delivery yeah so th that's the that's the food delivery sector and then another kind of you know we could talk about the the obvious wi not winners but beneficiaries of, of this kind of um situation like zoom and slack and microsoft teams and, and things like that but kind of one of the more surprising ones has been uh, big tech so you know the likes of amazon uh, facebook google have all been kind of in some of the things I've been reading applauded for their actions recently. You know, didn't you know Facebook has been praised for its fact checking um, about the spread of COVID nineteen, which which is a surprising thing to read about Facebook. Amazon, I know they're they're experiencing some worker unrest, but they've been also praised in some parts for keeping essential supply chains open and and kind of prioritizing what they consider essential supplies, and then even just social networks for uh, in general for keeping in touch, us in touch with family and friends. Um, could could kind of this situation and, and however long it lasts, you know, redeem or repair the the reputation of big tech in some way? What do you think, Emmett? Yeah, I think it's an extension of the point Roy made earlier about a forest fire uh, or a great big clear out. So virtuous behavior will bubble to the top. And I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of unexpected positives from this outcome. Yeah. 
Like, for example, the US CDC released data that shows that as a result of everybody staying at home, there are far, far fewer road deaths, deaths from influenza, deaths by gunfire. Um, in fact, weekly deaths on the whole have fallen off a cliff edge, and, and Rory shared uh, that, that data with us there during the week, and we can probably link it in, in, our, in our notes. Um, yeah. I mean, there's been a measured reduction in the world already in greenhouse gas emissions. There's a decrease in carbon monoxide levels caused by cars. And even videos have emerged online showing dolphins swimming in an empty port in Sardinia and in Venice, which is usually packed with, with boats. And, and, you know, to get to your point and to your question, James, you know, a, a colleague of my wife said, and she lives in Manila, she's from the Philippines, said that she and her colleagues firmly believe that the world is undergoing a period of healing. And I just love that message. I mean, obviously, the backdrop is not good, but there's, there's a great big cleanse happening, I certainly think and hope. And then when you think of big tech's reputation, I mean, when you talk about benefits, that's the best. <laughs> you know, like, so really, I think these businesses have the platform and the ability to do good without a lot of effort. And when they yeah. do it, the world notices. And, and I think, you know, big tech, tech's bad rap came through, I suppose, a sequence of events that were not designed to be bad, or at least were perceived as bad. But now we have the inverse happening. So I think we're going to see the giant platforms of the world using the reach to do good and yeah great the the, yeah. the the this cleansing behavior is is washing through at the moment and and whether it's apple facebook amazon microsoft they, they will do good because they know they have the power to do it and they there's a sponsoring thought there which is our reputation will improve Rory, or do you think it might be a case that it's just after after behaving so badly in in past times i'm thinking particularly of facebook is is that it's kind of a bit of surprise to see them um, doing the right thing. I wouldn't say it's a surprise, but it's, I mean, like, I I kind of shudder at the idea that they're being praised for this now. Like, uh, uh, you know, as if, you know, they should have been doing this all along. <laughs> you know, the, like, yeah. this idea that we needed something of this magnitude to happen for them to get their shit together is upsetting. You know, they should have been fact-checking things and not letting people... Like the idea that you have to now say you can't post misinformation about COVID-19 because it could potentially lead to deaths. That, that is, you know, they, they, people have been posting misinformation about so many things over the years that yeah. would lead to deaths. It's just that now the spotlight is on them, mm. that, they, that they actually have to like make action on it. So, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's the forest fire again. Sometimes you need something big and dramatic for people to realize how messed up things are yeah i think i think a massive part of it as well is that it, it's so big in that it's affecting the entire world it's not just you know my with facebook my mind was cast back to the the midterm elections where they got in a lot of trouble for not fact checking checking political ads and you know it was obviously a massive thing but it's you know it's just that was just in the u.s in certain parts whereas this you know COVID-19 pandemic is affecting every country in the entire world. And it's, it's you know, it, it's an earthquaking event. Like there, there's nothing, it, definitely in my lifetime anyway, that's ever been like this. And it's kind of, if they can't kind of behave good and do the right thing now, when can they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and mean, look, it's like, you know, the the alcoholic who has to get liver cancer to realize that he's needs to stop drinking, you know, he, he, like 
if you keep pushing things to this level, you're going to see a backlash. And this, yeah. like, you know, maybe the US should think about publicly funded elections and they don't have to worry about this anymore. You know, these are the mm -hmm. kind of things that, that do suddenly emerge from giant crises. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it at that then. I've never heard that metaphor before, Rory, about the alcoholic. <laughs> um, we've all, we, you know, you realise you have to lose weight when you look at a picture of yourself and realise I'm disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after all three months of sitting at home. Um, so there's loads of great stuff to check out in the My Wall Street app at the moment. Um, the team has written some great daily insights uh, this week, including a guide on how to analyse corporate management and the likelihood of companies like Airbnb having their IPO this year. We'll also be adding our new Stock of the Month report to My Wall Street on Monday, April 6th, uh, and the new episode of the Stock of the Month podcast will follow on shortly after that. All of these things, plus loads more, are available exclusively to My Wall Street subscribers, so make sure to go into My Wall Street right now and check those out. Um, Emmett, we're going to go move on to the company we never talked about. Um, you were talking about pure storage this week. I am. And as you know, this is a company where we generally descend to playing rock, paper, scissors in order to decide who's going to dive into the latest results. Yeah, this is this is a perfect uh, Peter Lynch boring company, I think. It is, yeah. Well, I actually asked, you know, for the shortest straw this week and, and um, I am making this broadcast of my own free will. Neither I nor any <laughs> of my loved ones have been threatened by any of the other analysts in my Wall Street. So I wanted to do this because uh, Pure Storage was one of those... I suppose, partial enigmas from our shortlist of great stocks. And um, I suppose Topline Don't Read, having dived into the business and reacquainted myself with the moving parts or not moving parts uh, and the geeks of the world laugh, um, I'm actually very impressed. I think it's a wonderful business. So basically, to rewind, in 2009, traditional hard drives served you know, the vast, vast majority of the world's data storage needs, like from personal computers through to giant business uh, enterprise class data centers. And, you know, people, the world will know what a traditional hard drive is when you just, if you have, if you have a laptop that's more than like 10 minutes old, it wears, it gets hot. You, you basically hear your computer sucking in air to keep hard drive and a few other components cool and it's a moving part inside your computer that stores data and that's i guess most people whether you're techie or not will relate to the fact that your laptop gets hot because it has to keep something cool and, and that's what you know what's happening there but pure storage was founded with the intention of selling flash-based solid state storage, SSD, we're going to call it, which is just okay. a technical piece of equipment that allows that allows information to be stored way, way faster um, and without uh, moving parts. So I think the latest uh, set of, of uh, Apple laptops or Macs and iMacs all use SSD storage, so there's no spinning parts and, and it's nice and quiet. And, and even today, SSD devices are 10 times more expensive than traditional hard drives. Um, when you measure dollars per terabyte. So there is a great advantage to having SSD storage, which is what pure storage specializes in. Um, but, uh, the, but spinning magnetic disks are slower, more energy intensive, but they're way cheaper. So um, 
to define to explain pure storage's business in their own words and this quote unquote they say the might of our all flash technology grows competitive advantage so powerful it almost seems unfair which i think is great <laughs> a real there's, kind there's of a cock a cockiness or something there's like a that. cockiness it's goosebumps you're like wow. i think they call that a humble brag <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a very humble. It's we make you so much better, and and uh, I guess in a nutshell, Pure Storage has a data platform that enables businesses to enhance their performance, and in their words, reduce complexity and cost. So that's that's kind of how they describe themselves in their own SEC documents. And um, one of the points of reassurance for me on Pure Storage from the outset was that our chief product officer, Alesh. It's his favorite stock. He loves it. So, you know, yeah. as a barometer, we were like, Alesh, is pure storage any good? And he doesn't think it's good. He thinks it's great. So pure as storage... disclaimer there, he did get himself trapped in Vietnam during a, a, a global <laughs> pandemic. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, he is there at the moment. What city is he in, Rory? Is he in... I think he's in Dalat at the moment, but oh, like the, yeah. the likelihood of him getting home in the next month is very slim. Oh, so. very slim. So, yeah. Sell, sell pure storage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Alash liked it, and he's plenty of time to think about it over there in Vietnam. So, that, so if we just look at pure storage from a numbers perspective, um, in around August 2018, what one and a half years ago, a year ago, is about 26, 27 bucks a share. Today, it's about 12 bucks 40 a share, which okay. means its market cap is about 3.3 billion dollars. So, um, so the, like everything else, really, pure storage has fallen from its all-time highs. You know, on the big picture, it's still on an upward trajectory, but it has had quite a fall from its from its August 2018 price. Um, the business has loads of cash. There's tons of cash, 1.3 billion dollars in cash. It has about 600 million debt. Um, and has very high insider ownership. I think insider ownership was 10%. And what I believe to be most important has a very future relevant business. Because in fairness, to give you such a competitive advantage, it just seems unfair. I mean, that's pretty exciting. So um, the best we can do, I think, in this COVID-ridden world is to look at Pure Storage's Q4 results, which were published and announced way back on February 29th, 2020. So a month ago, they published the state of the nation for the business, and it was a, a very nice business indeed. So they're, they're, so in their Q4 results, they, they had kind of five highlights from the quarter, which I think are fairly extrapolatable for the entire year. They, they are consistently, quarter after quarter, growing and taking market share. And I don't think that that's going to change immensely as a result of the crisis we're in at the moment. They are expanding their presence within the public cloud. Their subscription services momentum uh, is, is gaining pace. They have they they have all types of innovation that they're talking about, and and they still say that their their data experience is still the most modern and and most relevant for businesses. So if we just kind of dive in, the, so the business is very future relevant. It has plenty of cash to ride out the world we're in at the moment, the the, the crisis we're in at the moment, um, and it has a total of so its total number of customers. When you think about it, might seem underwhelming. They have seven and a half thousand and customers, which is which is not um, not a huge number when you think of it as yeah. a $3.3 billion business. 
but it has 44% of the Fortune 500 businesses. So it has the, it has the, uh, I suppose, the brand strength and the product offering to entice four and a half out of every 10 businesses on the Fortune 500 over to their platform. And I certainly think that they're going to attract more um, more in the years ahead. And their customer account number just really steadily grows for every quarter. It's just like drawing stairs on a piece of paper. It just goes up, 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 up. Every quarter, their customer account grows uh, very regularly and generally by around 500 customers have, over the last few quarters. Their revenue is on a run and is up 21% in the last quarter. And they've tons of deferred revenue, which is great. Customer lifetime value is high. Their margins are unbelievable. It's like 70%, 70.5% gross margins. Um, like every number that Pure Storage has is good or great and improving. But yeah. the thing that I think gets me most excited, and it's that qualitative versus quantitative uh, piece that you have to, I suppose, reconcile when you're a stock investor, is very much a qualitative point, which is their customers are raving about what they do. Their net promoter score is 86.6, which is okay. like huge i didn't even realize the an nps score could go so high i mean the national average for nps for all things uh, cloud computers 24 which sounds mm. right because how excited can you really be but somehow there are seven and a half thousand customers excitement about the product they're offering this this um ssd storage in the cloud is 86.6 and um, so there's loads of people like Alesh and and <laughs> and and, and uh, Gardner who who published her magic uh, quadrant for you know since being beginning, beginning of time have have um, pure storage in the very very top right hand quadrant for solid state arrays wow what a what a what a wonderful <laughs> boast about so what an accolade yeah what an accolade exactly so i'm actually i'm I've become in the researching of pure storage in reacquainting myself with what they do and why they're different um, and looking at their most recent numbers. I think that they're a business that will not get significantly hurt from the coronavirus outbreak. I don't see and many of the seven and a half thousand businesses deciding they're going back to old spinning disks for storage or to build their own data center. I think that they have the cash to ride this out, however it lasts, however long it lasts, whether it's three months or 13 months or possibly even longer. And I think that the fact is their customers, they're not your average, the, the decision maker for pure storage is, doesn't look like one of the four of us here on this, I include Luke, but it's, um, but it is Alesh. Alesh understands the finer points, you know, on, um, on the decision. And I think it's a, it's a really attractive business. And the fact that it's just been hammered down, I've put it into my shortlist of 50 companies at the moment that I'm quite interested in investing in, okay. in, 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 the, in the weeks and months ahead. So that was Pure Storage, our company we were talking about. I hope you're uh, listening in from Vietnam, Alesh. You got a, a great shout out there <laughs> in uh, your recommendation of you're that. You're putting that as like something that like, just because Alesh likes something, you like it. Like, I mean, <laughs> that would actually be a turnoff for me. <laughs> you know, like, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have him. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's move on before before there's a HR incident. Uh, Dragon Busters, so... 
Stephen asks us on Twitter, what screener criteria do we have for the stocks considered on the My Wall Street shortlist? Rory, I'm going to come to you. What are the general things we look for, I suppose, to boil down um, the, the 7,000 or so publicly listed companies into a more manageable list that we might consider to add to My Wall Street? Uh, well, uh, so to start off with, it's probably easier to say the things that we avoid because, okay, you know, we so there's certain industries that we'd never go near. Um, we don't recommend any pharmaceutical companies. We don't recommend any big banks. Uh, we don't recommend any big energy companies. Uh, okay. The I mean, the thought process behind that, and Emma, correct me if I'm wrong, but like there's an expertise level there that you need for those industries that yeah. I don't have. Um, yeah. And, you know, Charlie Munger said, you know, we have to deal in things that are understandable to us. You know, we need to, we need to, you, you, the starting point has to be, can I understand how this company operates? Yeah. So that, that cuts out a huge amount. <laughs> you know, you're, you, <laughs> you've already killed off 90% of the companies out there when you, you ask if we can understand what they're doing. Because yeah. there's there's just certain things that we don't we don't know, and um, then you're left with what happens to be a bunch of mostly kind of consumer facing companies, some B two B companies, some B two B two C companies, and they're more understandable. You can kind of you know even if you don't interact with them personally, you probably know someone who does interact with them in in some level. And and then we look for the things that uh, define a good company, and that's. Do they have an economic moat? Is there a reason why this company should exist today? Or is there a reason why this company will be here in 10 years and another company won't be just come in and, and, and take them over? Do they have good managers? Do they have people that we trust? You know, if you listen to an earnings call, do you feel this person is uh, an honest person with integrity? Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that cuts off, you're, you're getting down now, you've, you've cut 7,000 down to quite a small number uh, with just those checkpoints. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's just kind of, you know, what do you believe in? Do you believe yeah. this business is important? Um, are they going to do something that, or are they doing something that people really care about, are evangelists about? If this company disappeared tomorrow, would people notice? Um, okay. If, if the answer to that is no, it's probably not a good investment. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Thanks for that, Rory. Um, so Michael asked us via the My Wall Street app, I was wondering if you might be able to talk about asset allocation. Since your focus is on equities, it would be helpful to understand how to allocate all assets across the different asset classes. Um, Emmett, I'll throw that to you. Yeah, sure. Well, we're the stock guys, as I'm sure our listeners might have noticed. And, and there's an awful lot of... Uh, writings and about portfolio theory and if you start a pension and go into a pension fund manager they'll they, they have a, a formula that they apply on how cash has to be deployed across all the different assets because primarily when you go into port portfolio theory wealth preservation is a very big part of that equation so a, a you know portfolio manager will have a portion of of the investments distributed across land, property, bonds, stocks, and all the different types of, of assets that you can deploy cash into. Um, so we haven't necessarily, as a business, taken the broader portfolio view into account. We could Google it as easily as the next guy uh, and, and figure what you know what one should do. But I guess for Michael, the, the, the answer is, 
it starts with what are your supreme objectives like we in in like if cash preservation is king for michael at this moment um it would make sense to kind of figure out those assets most least likely to lose value the nice yeah. thing about stock investing uh, well there are very many nice things about stock investing but it is the catalyst within your asset portfolio so you could buy a vast tract of land in middle of america and know that you know by the time i retire it would be broadly the same value maybe a bit up maybe a bit down mm. but you can boost the uh, the value of your long-term returns with stocks well chosen. So I'm not being, I'm not giving a pointed answer to Michael's question or additional answer. How do you like? So that really comes down to your own, uh, yeah, your own objectives. Yeah, and I definitely don't. You kind of the stage of life you're in and and your risk profile. Yeah, and um, the the word objectives there, I think, is like the most important word. You know, like my me and my dad were talking about investing right now and he's he was kind of like would you be buying equities at this level and i was like yeah of course and then he sent me this uh this email from the wealth manager of lego the guy who owns lego's wow. wealth fund it's an 18 billion dollar fund and he wrote this paper saying i wouldn't be investing in equities right now things are too uncertain like yeah there's two types of investors in the world. There's the ones who are trying to get rich and they're the ones who are trying to stay rich. Mm. If I had $18 billion right now, I wouldn't be buying stocks <laughs> like that. I just wouldn't. I'd be like, why bother? Stay, stay off field at the moment. But this is the time when people who are trying to get rich yeah. are going to pick up some serious bargains. Yeah. Rory, I'd say there's a lot of things you'd be doing if you had $18 billion right now. <laughs> um, so that's the end of Jared Musters. Let's move on to the elevator pitch then quickly. So um, a lot of people suddenly have a lot of free time on their hands at the minute. So what I asked you guys to do this week was pitch me your favorite investing podcast that's not Stock Club. Um, and the disclaimer here is you can't make it too good of a pitch. But is there any other um, <laughs> podcasts you listen to that are not Stock Club, but um, are good for the kind of the, the common investor? Um, Rory, go with you first. Uh, uh, there's, there's plenty. Um Got to give a shout out to Jason Moser, whatever podcast he's on. I'm I'm always listening. Uh, the there's a guy called Scott Galloway who is professor of uh, business in uh, New York University. Uh, uh, he's great. If he's on yeah. a one called Pivot with Kara Swisher, and I think he's just released his own one. His insights into businesses are brilliant. Uh, they yeah. I, I listen to him religiously and. You should too. <laughs> yeah, big fan of Scott Galloway. He's got a great blog, and his Twitter feed is is usually fantastic as well. Kind of keeps you up to date with with what's going on. Emmett, what about you? Yeah, and I'm actually more of a reader than a, a listener. I think it was David Williams, the author, said I've written more books than I've read. Um, I, I might have recorded more podcasts than I've listened to. Um, but yeah, I do like Pivot. I've listened to Pivot podcast um, on many occasions. I'm a big fan as well. But I, I, I'd have to go with Rule Breaker Investing by David Gardner, who yeah. has been a mentor to me for a long time. Um, and, and a guy who has a very, well, he's incredibly... Um, strategic in his thinking and can take a very very mature far field view of where the world is uh where the world is headed and on his podcast at a nice pace he'll generally pick a stock and just kind of dive into it and it's all very conversational understandable it's a, it's a nice podcast so i'd i'd, I'd go with david gardner's real break your rule breaker investing podcast which is brought to you by the motley fool 
Cool. So they were um, Pivot by Scott Galloway and Cara Swisher and then the Rule Breaker podcast, which comes from the Motley Fool. Um, so that's about it from us here today at Stock Club. Um, don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch with us. You can catch us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. Or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club 2. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's it from us. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.